You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part four of a series in the book of Esther. Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. We'll pause our reading at the end of Esther chapter 4. Now we've seen already in this book the King Ahasuerus who is a, a powerful and wealthy man but actually who is weak and follows whoever has his ear. We see him being angered in chapter 1 when Vashti his queen refuses to play along with his games and then we see how he seeks out a new younger more beautiful bride uh, which Esther turns out to be the one Esther who is Jewish the relative of Mordecai in the citadel of Susa, <clears throat> and then how Mordecai saves the king's life, and that's put on record at the end of chapter 2. But in chapter 3, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, the Agagite, and a centuries-old uh, hatred between the descendants of Agag, the Amalekite king, 
and the Jewish people is kindled and Haman decides he will uh, eliminate the Jews and he gets the king by really a process of bribery to agree to give him that authority. Well, Mordecai, uh, unsurprisingly, goes into mourning as do the Jews across the empire. Uh, but Mordecai uh, then uh, this is in mourning and Esther hears about it and she sends out clothes for him, but he won't take them. Esther doesn't realise what the cause of his mourning is, uh, but she sends out Hatak, the eunuch, to find out. And uh, Hatak discovers the, the reason. Mordecai gives him instructions for Esther, tells her to try and speak to the king, but there's a problem and Esther returns or sends back word to Mordecai. The problem is that she has not got access to the king. For the last 30 days, she ha he hasn't summoned her. It seems that Ahasuerus has uh, grown tired of Esther, perhaps, or has been busy with other things or playing around with some of his other wives or concubines. And for her to go without being invited by the king, uh, it puts her at risk of death. In fact, there is only one law for people who do that. It's a strict rule that no one should come into the presence of the king without being summoned by him. Even the queen herself, his favoured wife. When Mordecai hears this, and it doesn't necessarily indicate that Esther is unwilling to take the risk, She's just stating the facts to Mordecai, but he explains to her that she can't expect to be spared. But within that, there is a, a, a confidence. This book, as I've said throughout this series, does not mention God by name. But in Mordecai's response to Esther, we get some of the clearest indicators in this book that the, that, that the book of Esther is, is surrounded by a worldview, an understanding of reality that is deeply centred on faith. Mordecai says that if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. He's expressing his confidence that the Jewish people will not be eliminated. What is that confidence based on? Well, of course, it's based on his faith in God. God doesn't need to be mentioned because if you know the Bible, you know that God has made promises to the Israelites. God has said that he will be faithful to his covenant to them. And Mordecai trusts that promise. God will deliver the Jews, but there's no guarantee that Esther and Mordecai, her father's house, will be spared. In fact, they will die. But then the second thing that he says is, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And what's behind that confidence that he, he's trusting here that God puts people in positions for the right moment? That's actually a very profound statement. It's a statement that has proven challenging and encouraging for many people of God throughout the centuries. It's one of the go-to places whenever someone is wrestling with their circumstances and they've been given a position of authority, but they realise that they have to make some tough decisions and, and they don't want to compromise their faith. The person giving them advice might often say, but you have been put in this position for such a time as this. God puts people in position to serve his purpose at his time.
So what Mordecai is saying to Esther is, first of all, negatively, you know, don't think you will be spared, even though God will deliver the Jews. They're not all going to be wiped out, but you could be. But secondly, he says, Esther, stop seeing this as a, a, a as a as a risk to you, but actually as an opportunity, as a moment when you are in a place where you may be able to have influence and you've got to use that influence for good. That's an incredibly helpful principle for us as Christians, living in a context where God is excluded. God is not named in the book of Esther. And in our culture and our society, we're not supposed to name God. God is supposed to be excluded in a secular culture, a secular society. Well, how are we as Christians to deal with that? We need to understand that it is God who gives us each opportunity each bit of influence or power or authority and the question is why has God given that to me for this season how can I use that for his purpose and for the good of his people that's what Esther's being challenged to do and so Esther follows Mordecai's instruction and sends an instruction to him to gather the Jews to fast on his her behalf not eating or drinking for three days night or day and her young women will also fast and if she perishes when she goes to the king she perishes now this is a very different response than we saw in the preceding chapter chapter three from Haman remember in that chapter we read that Haman cast lots for a whole year according to verse 7, in order to find an auspicious day to go to the king to bring his concern. Now, presumably Haman was also invited by the king on that day and perhaps on many other days before, so he's not at risk in the way that Esther is, as far as we can see. But what he's trying to do is to find the best date for him to get his opportunity. And he does it by casting lots, a superstition. We saw in the last episode that despite the fact that he uh, thinks the superstition is going to work, God is still working in the dates uh, because the date of Passover is the date um, when his Haman's decree is issued or, or just before Passover. But uh, here Esther doesn't cast lots. There's no superstition. She just says let's fast for a week and it says fast but we know that when Jewish people fasted, they fasted in order to focus on prayer. So once again, although there's no mention of prayer or of God or of the name of God, it's very clear that this is a religious action. Why is she praying, fasting? So that they can pray. I find it interesting too that Esther's young women are going to fast. That suggests that Esther had had an influence on their religious beliefs, whether they're simply going along with their mistress or whether they've actually become believers in God through her. I like to fancy it's the latter. But certainly here is Esther now taking a lead. And we saw in the last episode that she uh, was loyal to uh, Mordecai. Or rather, I think it's in chapter chapter 2. Uh, and uh, she is loyal to Mordecai. She follows his instructions. Now this chapter ends with Mordecai following her instructions. Esther, this fine young woman, beautiful but wise and, and now showing this courage that she's willing to die 
for the possibility that she might deliver her people. And, and Mordecai obeying her, she's now taking the lead. It's a beautiful picture of this woman leading. And she does it inspired by Mordecai, who reminds her that there is something greater going on than simply her life. Why is she in the position that she's in? Not simply because she was selected for her beauty by uh, the king, but because God has given her an opportunity. So the unnamed God can't be ignored in this passage. Let's read on then into Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting in, on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this, If I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. We'll pause our reading after verse 8. Now this is just a, a wonderful insight into this beautiful person, Esther. Not only has she been praying for uh, three days, it says on the third day, maybe that's the third day of their times of, of prayer. Uh, remember cha uh, chapter four ends with her saying that we'll pray, um, uh, eat or drink or for three days. Sorry, I said seven earlier. That's my mistake. It's three days. So on the third day, she's she's been praying and fasting, but she's also been making preparations. How do we know that? Because she has a feast ready. And she prepares herself. She goes and positions herself where the king can see her, wearing her royal robes, looking beautiful. And the king looks on her with favour and summons her to come. And the king asks her what she wants. And remarkably, he, he offers to her this, this great possibility of great reward. Uh, I say remarkably, well, Ahasuerus does seem to be quite impulsive and a little bit foolish, doesn't he? And he's taken in by, by Esther. He favours her again. But Esther now has this opportunity. I mean, look at this. The king is offering her half the kingdom. She could be very powerful. She might think, well, you know, it's awful what's going to happen to my people, but I can survive and I can do well out of this. But such a contrast she is to the king and to Haman. Remember, Haman bribed the king with the promise of 10,000 talents. Here the king wants to bribe Esther. Maybe he's wanting to get certain favours from her. But Esther has a very measured approach. She says, well, why don't you and the king come to the feast? And the king or you and Haman come to the feast and the king doesn't seem to 
uh, be surprised that she mentions Heyman. He seems to be quite the flavour of the month, uh, maybe the the highest official in the land, the one who has the king's favour. They seem to be very close. And so the king summons Haman quickly. And uh, and it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because here is, is Esther calling the shots and Haman having to, to do basically Esther's bidding through the king. And they come to the feast. And then they do what they're always doing, drinking wine. Now, again, I love that, that the feast is prepared. Esther prayed and she did what she could to prepare. And that's what God's people should do, isn't it? They They pray. I say she prayed, we're told she fasted, but we know that when Jews fasted, they prayed. So she prays and she does what she can with what God has given her. That's the beauty of the life of faith. We trust in God to guide us, to give us the opportunity, to give us favour with people, to give us wisdom to know what to do. And then we step out and we do what we can do based on that wisdom with what God has entrusted to us. And so the king says again after the feast, what is your wish? It will be granted up to half the kingdom. And Esther doesn't rush in. Her timing is impeccable. She isn't going to rush, unlike the king who rushes to get Haman, unlike Haman who in previous chapters rushes to get out a decree, a hurried decree to plan for the killing of the Jews. Esther, even though she's the one whose life is on the line, she's the one whose people are under threat, is perfectly patient in her timing. She says, sure, come to another feast that I'll prepare for you and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. What a woman of great wisdom, patient in her timing, not revealing her hand, simply setting a situation where Haman will be there with the king with her. Let's read on verse 9 of Esther chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he never rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendour of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honoured him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. We'll stop reading there again at the end of Esther chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, Again, I mean, if you know how this story is going to pan out, this becomes all the more delicious. Here is Haman, joyful and glad of heart. But there's only one thing that is holding him back from fullness of joy. The fact that Mordecai is there. Mordecai, who must be removed. But he restrains himself, verse 10. Haman is not a man of great restraint, but he manages to do nothing there and then against Mordecai. Uh, and so he goes home and he boasts to his friends and his wife. He recounts to them how wonderful he is. What a great guy I am. So rich. 
all my sons, so many promotions, so honoured by the king. And the, the, the cherry on the cake, the, the icing on the cake, the cherry at the top, the, the, the most, the pinnacle of all of that is that even Queen Esther, so beloved and honoured by the queen, has, has included me, only me, in a feast with the king. And she's going to do the same thing tomorrow. What a boastful man. A man who is blinded to the danger that is before him. He doesn't realise that he's been drawn into Esther's trap. He doesn't realise it because in his own pride, he can only think of this as being a, a cause for further pride. And not only that, but because in his bitterness and hatred of Mordecai, he's distracted. He doesn't realise the danger that Esther is to him. And his wife plots along with him and his friends and they say, set up a, a massive gallows or possibly a stake. Verse 14, we saw that before, that um, there is this uh, possibility that it's either a gallows for hanging or a stake for impaling. Let a, a gallows 50 cubits high, a cubit is 45 centimetres, so this is um, about 20 uh, just over over twenty meters high. It's a it's a tall um, stake or gallows, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it or impaled on it, and then go joyfully to the to the feast. In other words, Mordecai, look, this thing that's holding you back from fullness of joy, from really enjoying what a great guy you are. Why why would you wait a few more months? I mean, the date has been set for months down the line for the Jews to be annihilated. Go and get him now. And so the suspense builds. Mordecai is now under an immediate and urgent threat. What's going to happen? How is this going to pan out? Is the evil Haman going to get rid of Mordecai? Is Esther going to be able to turn things around? How is that going to happen? Well, we're going to have to wait till the next episode to find out. But what we're seeing here is, is this beautiful character of Esther, a, a godly woman, because yes, she calls a fast and we know that means prayers. A woman who is taking on board what her, her relative Mordecai has said, that God will deliver the Jews. The only question is whether you're going to be part of that, the instrument of it or not. Do you not think God might have put you here for this purpose? And uh, here is her in her courage, in her wisdom, in her timing, in keeping her cards close to her, her chest, in actually leading along Haman uh, with the one great vulnerability that he has, his own pride and hubris. Here is this Haman who is so bitter against Mordecai, blinded in his rage, planning a swift death for his enemy. And here is Esther, supreme through this, the example of the person that God has placed, who is serving her part within the constraints of the life that she has been given. Circumstances she wouldn't have chosen, circumstances that take her outside the, the will of God and the law of God, eating non-kosher food, living in the palace, uh, being a wife of a pagan king, not by her own choice. And yet God is at work through her. And Haman's joy, don't want to spoil it too much, but it's soon going to be turned to disaster. But more of that 
in the next episode.